Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. Welcome to another Thursday of political talk. And we are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. And we are proud to have a great show coming up for you. And uh, get right into it. We have with us on the line already Maggie Haberman of Politico. Politico, the premier site for political news and information of all kinds. And happy to have Maggie back on the show after a long hiatus. Maggie, welcome back to Spin Class. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Maggie, uh, you have been uh, quite the... I'd say the virtuoso as far as the writing, covering a bunch <laughs> of topics out there. I, I, I mean, I, it's hard to figure out exactly what Maggie Haberman's beat is these days. So me what too. is, what, what are you covering out there? Uh, and you know, before I get into any specifics, I'm covering national politics in general. Um, what that has meant lately has been, uh, in the last six months, a lot of Chris Christie, um, some Jeb Bush, but mostly a lot of Hillary Clinton, whose book tour has uh, been sort of the, the pre-engagement for her re-entering political life. Very interesting. And I guess that anticipates my first question, which was that being Hillary. And, you know, just to throw out there, since you're covering the national scene, I had a conversation the other day with, with somebody and kind of looked at the race like this. There's a whole bunch of Republicans with a shot at the nomination. And then on the Democratic side, which is unusual kind of because there won't be an incumbent, you have one person kind of waiting in the wings, and then there are a whole bunch of lesser people. And yeah, so t- t- tell exactly me what you think right. about that. I mean, Hillary Clinton, look, she was inevitable once before, right? So um, there will be a primary of some kind. Uh, it's just very hard to see somebody doing the damage to her that Barack Obama did, because Barack Obama um, had tremendous crossover appeal uh, to the Democratic base in a way that, you know, even as popular as Elizabeth Warren is with progressives, she wouldn't. Um, O'Malley, Martin O'Malley, the governor of Maryland, is made very clear he's running. Um, Joe Biden, the vice president, is really thinking about running. Um, and then you have a couple of, you know, others, others here and there who are thinking about it. I think the majority of them will not do it if she's running. I mean, Howard Dean's name gets mentioned, but I think that Dean does not uh, want to do a suicide mission. Um, you know, the, the big question for a lot of people, I think, after this book tour with Hillary Clinton is, does she have a fire in the belly for what will be a real brutal grind of a campaign? And while she certainly has stamina on the health questions, or I think they did a pretty good job of putting those to rest, um, just in the abstract of, like, can she maintain this case, uh, I do think that uh, the question of whether you really want to work hard for this is a different one. And some of her agitation, which I'm sure you saw, reports on with some interviews um, on certain topics do not suggest somebody who is sort of in that frame of mind yet. Now, she can get there, but I don't think she's there yet. So what about the fact that the party seems to be moving or lurching to the left in certain quarters? And I'm not sure how much of that's national because you know, we tend to see people here in the big city seem to have a little bit of a New York City-centric view. But certainly if you're sitting in New York, you're looking at a Democratic Party that is moving to the left and where the activism is. And there's certainly Hillary Clinton has has she moved to the left or maybe she's always been that part of the. But the Clintons are not identified with the left. Progressive They're not, part of the although party. I think that she's doing I think she's making sort of preliminary moves to try to identify herself with um, some of the economic discussion that's taking place um, to the on the left within the party. Um, it's important to your point about New York City. Remember, her big ally is Bill de Blasio. He was her campaign manager in 2000. Um, Bill de Blasio and his wife, Shirlane, love Hillary Clinton. Um, I don't. I think that that will actually be a pretty powerful surrogate for her if she runs um, and a pretty important voice vouching for her. Uh, I also just don't think that the... I, well, I do think that um, uh, the primary electorate for Democrats has indeed gotten more liberal. I think that... I think that um, uh, two advisors to uh, Barack Obama, one of whom was involved with the de Blasio race, John Del Tocato, and then his um, mentor, David Axelrod, have both talked about this over many, many years, and it's very true, but, but it's hard to extrapolate out 
from a, a New York City mayoral primary to what things will look like nationally. But let's just say for a second that you have uh, Howard Dean or Elizabeth Warren in the race. Wouldn't you have a similar situation to what happened with Andrew Cuomo with this kind of uh, and the Working Families Party kind of? Uh, yes, they managed to make up and get together, but it was a very public fight, uh, a very public, uh, I, you know, uh, I guess, disagreement as well as that, which is still going on. Actually, Andrew Cuomo, in fact, yeah. or may actually have a Democratic uh, primary to the left of him. Uh, why yeah. wouldn't no, I, well, Zephyr Teachout is, is really working at heart. I do think that's what this would look like. It's about, it's not about necessarily taking out the, you know, the incumbent or the uh, presumed frontrunner. It's really about influencing the policy debate. That's what you saw with the WSP, and their big win was getting the IBC to disband. Um, so I, I think you would see something similar, but I think Hillary Clinton is going to do a lot of things to make sure that somebody on the left doesn't have much room to breathe, on policy where she is having problems so far has been in articulating uh, a, a clear response about her own wealth because the Clintons were not wealthy when they went into the White House last time. And I think she genuinely does not consider herself to be um, among the nation's wealthy, even though she indisputably is. And so I think that that, that is less about being of money than it is about um, being... Uh, sort of living in a bubble, which I think she has for a very long time. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. And we're talking to Maggie Haberman here on Spin Class, Maggie Haberman of Politico, a, a New Yorker originally in her journalistic career, now covering politics nationally. And just to harp on that point for a second, Hillary, the Clintons are not just wealthy. They're they're really, I guess, mega wealthy at this point. They're not necessarily billionaires, but, um, you know, it, it's a mega wealthy type of life. And as far as Living in the bubble, I mean, she's been in a bubble now as first lady, as senator, as secretary of state. Uh, you know, she hasn't really had a normal life, uh, it, you know, where she goes to shopping in the supermarket on her own uh, for a couple decades. Well, I think I think that's right. Um, I, I think that when she was a senator, she led a bit more of a normal life in that, like, she flew commercial. I mean, the last time she was anything close to normal was in the Senate. Um, uh, flying commercial—that's the key differentiator of the rich and the super rich. Oh uh, well, at the moment, it's, it's certainly a key differentiator of like when you're actually traveling among how like regular people travel um, versus being in private jets, right? So, I mean, she's look. She has had a security detail forever. Um, she has had staff forever. She has not had to live the way other people live, but she she really can do relatability. She can do. You know, the listening tour that she did in 2000 for the Senate race was pretty mocked when it was first announced. It was a really smart idea. It worked really well for her. She needs to do something like that that sort of is coming back down to earth, I, I think. And that is not what she has done so far. Okay, one last Hillary question, and I, I, you alluded to it in a piece that you wrote, is Huma Abedin, who mm-hmm. many people kind of had cast out of the Hillary inner circle uh, I think erroneously, obviously, uh, over the her husband, uh, former Congressman Anthony Weiner, as uh, many of you out there know uh, pretty well. Uh, what has happened with Huma? Huma seems to be back at center stage in the center, or maybe she never left. No, I don't. It's as one person in Hillary World said to me, it's like it's like the whole thing never happened. Um, I think that uh, you know, look, she's not going to be managing a campaign, and she's not going to be um, a chief political strategist. But in terms of what Hillary Clinton's operation is right now, which is very thin. Uh, Huma Abedin is clearly in charge, and uh, you know people should not uh, people should not assume otherwise. She's very involved in helping set up Hillary Clinton's uh, travel for the midterms for other candidates and so forth. Let's talk about the Republicans for a second. And the first Republican that comes to mind, and most New Yorkers and New Jerseyers, is Chris Christie. Uh, many Republicans are still holding out hope that Chris Christie is going to run for president. And uh, to me, in my mind, I think I think it's a little bit remote, but uh, but we'll see. It's hard to run for president when you're under investigation by the U.S. attorney. And hopefully that'll you know come to some kind of uh, fruition, because I think it's been painful just to keep up with this 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 story. But he is headed to New Hampshire. He is. Um, he's headed to New Hampshire in his capacity as chairman of the RDA. But uh, I 
disagree with you. I think he is going to run. Um, I just don't think he's um, anywhere near as strong as he seemed to be. And frankly, I don't think it's just because of Bridgegate. I think that I think that he has got other, many of the same problems that Rudy Giuliani had, with one exception, because he is not her choice. Um, that ultimately really was what killed Rudy in uh, in the primaries. Um, but I do think that he's going to run, and he's going to he's going to Iowa next week. He's going to New Hampshire for his second visit in several weeks. Um, so yeah, I I think that he absolutely. I mean, his folks around him, if you talk to them will say they think this is all going to blow over and everything's going to be fine. Now, whether that's trying to delude us or trying to delude themselves, I don't know. But he's not changing his mind. But it's not so much the bridge gate that everybody remembers right now. It's the New Jersey economy. There's no, all exactly, kinds of exactly issues right. going on. But with this with the same you know, thing with Giuliani's record, right? I mean, like his record in New York City hurt him. His record in New York City was not a plus. And so, like, I just think that you're going to see a lot of similar types of scrutiny. I think the Club for Growth, the anti-tax group, has been very influential in the primaries um, nationally in the last year and a half. You're going to see them, um, I think, really scrutinizing his record, and I don't think it will it will end up looking good for him. Very interesting. Who is Chris Christie's primary, well, primary, who is his chief rival for that slice of the Republican electorate? You know, if he thinks he can win, you know, where does he think he is going to, how does he think he's going to do it? And who is the person who is a most threat to Chris Christie aside from himself? Uh, well, I mean, I, I really do think it is himself, honestly. Uh, but, but he shares the center-right space with Jeb Bush. Um, and then there, you know, there are a couple of other people who, uh, there, you know, there's, there's Christian Bush in one corner, there's sort of Rand Paul, Ted Cruz in another, and then you have in between people who may or may not be able to bridge the divide, which would be Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, and Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida. Um, Walker is, is a very attractive candidate to a lot of people. He is in the middle of a pretty tough re-election fight right now, so it's, that's a bit of a, of a, of a question mark. And Rubio, you know, the question is how damaged she was by how he handled the immigration uh, process the last year and a half, uh, where he was perceived as sort of talking out of both sides of his mouth. Um, Christie, Christie's main, Christie is a favorite of donors in New York. He's a favorite of Wall Street, but so is Jeb Bush. And so, I, you know, if, if Jeb Bush runs, I think it's going to be pretty hard for Christie. Uh, to do the same. Um, but if Jeb Bush runs, it's also pretty hard for Marco Rubio to run. So let's not look too far past the current administration for a second. And we're talking with Maggie Haberman of Politico. Uh, as far as the politics of the current administration, we're heading into the midterms, but this the Obama White House has a lot on its plate right now, a lot of crises where it seems to be catching up to, if you will, both on foreign policy, immigration. There just doesn't seem to be any any rest for them uh, this summer? I don't see any real, uh, really real respite coming up uh, because uh, you know the Middle East being what it is, and uh, ISIS and Iraq and it, it, Iran is still there as a as a threat. Syria, I mean, they, they've really kind of I, I don't know, but most people, a lot of people in the Middle East, uh, certainly people I speak to who who know who cover Israeli politics, think that John Kerry has made a real mess of things pretty much everywhere. Um. I think that uh, I think the administration has a ton of uh, problems on its plate. Um, there's border crisis um, that Obama's been dealing with the last few days. Um, there's obviously the situation in the Mideast. Um, uh, I think that it is going to be very hard for him to get anything done for the remainder of his presidency. So... <laughs> Where does that leave us? I guess. I mean, there's. Well, it it's not like there's a little bit of time left in the it presidency. There's in quite a, a bit. Typical situation, Michael. I mean, people. The, the, this is. Remember, Bush's numbers were pretty bad at this point in his second term too. Um, and so there, he, he may have had a different type of crisis. Um, and certainly, when he had to deal with the financial uh, meltdown, that was at the very end of his term, and that was different. Um, but I think that the situation between Obama and Republicans, forgetting about foreign policy for a second, taking out Kerry, the situation in the situation with the is so toxic and so messy 
that it is very hard to see anything getting done, which is part of why Obama declared uh, immigration reform dead. Um, and in terms of the White House's foreign policy decisions, those have been pretty criticized um, by a number of people for a long time. Um, and when it comes to the issue of Israel, as you know, um, even even some of his Democratic supporters believe there is a bit of a blind spot for him on, on dealing with this. Um, so I, I think that they are making sure to the extent that they can that the situation in the media does not spiral out of control, which is what they're worried about. Uh, but I think that the next two years are going to be um, very difficult in Washington. Well, that doesn't uh, augur well for our governments, if if you will, to try and get some of these things done. And we we need a lot of things to get done. I, you know, just uh, people should remember the you know the debt ceiling fight's going to come back and budget yeah. and everything and government shutdowns are going to be a threat and and the like. But uh, I pontificate too much. Uh, one uh, final question for you, Maggie. I want to just to be mindful of the uh, of the clock here. Uh, I read in the Wall Street Journal this morning, Andrew Cuomo, who has yet to take a who has yet to take an international trip, is now mm-hmm. thinking of going to Puerto Rico, not necessarily international, but also to Israel. I uh, saw that. I saw that. Um, well, I mean, you know, the, the takeaway from that is that Andrew Cuomo is um, is still considering running for president, even though I think it's going to be pretty hard for him to do that. Uh, if Hillary Clinton does, I don't think he will. But I think he is, uh, he has decided that he cannot leave himself ill positioned, um, completely. I also think that they see benefits of it in a gubernatorial race. It makes him look bigger as opposed to smaller. A lot of the fights that Andrew Cuomo has gotten mired in, um, in the last several months have made him look smaller, including the one with going after, um, de Blasio on charters. Um, it's not great when, when elected officials, especially um, chief executives, end up looking like political strategists or like they're playing political pundits, and there was some of that for Cuomo. Where, where, do you see, uh, where do you see the midterm elections coming out uh, right now without, no, in the Senate, no, I guess? No, uh, the no, House is not necessarily yes. in for grabs. No idea. I mean, I, so far there's no indication of a wave, um, but uh, on, on – uh, Republican side, but, you know, you have a lot of, I think, what, and what's saving the Democrats in some of these races for the Senate is that their candidates are better. Um, but I think that the Democrats are going to lose, you know, a, a number of House seats. I don't think it's going to be anything like what we saw in 2010, which was a historic wave. But I think that they will lose some more. And um, I think that uh, I, I think that the, the question of, of whether the Republicans take the Senate or not it's very hard to answer. I think if it was held today, well, actually, if it was literally today, the Republicans probably would, would win. Uh, you know, I think two weeks ago, Democrats had a better chance. I think you are going to see a lot of a sense of back and forth. It, it is a very, very volatile electorate. Um, I, most Democrats I know do not think that the economy is going to be positively impacting the Democrats' chances in the fall. The big question mark, obviously, is whether Obamacare has been serious mutual topic, um, and, uh, you know, whether whether there's more sort of damage to the president and how, how, how toxic his numbers are. But uh, the strategists on both sides are really treating this like, like you know, case-by-case uh, races in different states as opposed to an expectation of a wave. Yeah, I, I think that that is, you know, something that candidates should do as well, uh, you know, they got to pay attention to the state, got to pay attention to the district. And, you know, it, it pays to remind everybody there's still a lot of primaries left to go. Um, yeah. You know, throughout the month of August, I think yeah. uh, you got the 5th, the 7th, the 12th, the 19th. Every every Tuesday, there's pretty much a primary in August. And some of them are pretty interesting. Uh, Tennessee, Kansas. Uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, there might be some incumbent uh, incumbents being threatened. So far, the establishment of the Republicans has done OK, with the exception of Eric Cantor. Right. Well, Eric, Eric Cantor was an example of, to your point, you have to work the base. I mean, look, there certainly was a lot of anger in that district over the economy. It's also a seat that had been redrawn um, to include parts of another district that Cantor did not represent previously. So I think that played a role. Um, but I also think that uh, 
you know, their idea of running a campaign was to air a bunch of negative ads about David Brad. And that not only elevated David Brad's name ID, but it, it sort of, it was supplanting actual in-person campaigning by Cantor. And you can't do that. TV ads alone cannot win you a campaign. Right. Well, I, actually, and last, very, very last question or comment for you. I think I saw, it was actually, I, I got a chuckle out of it, that they asked Kansas Senator Pat Roberts, who has been accused over and over of not actually living in Kansas. I think he has, his address is actually at somebody else's house, uh, if, I, if I'm if i correct there, is that uh, he once asked, he's like, I'm here when I need to be. He said something like, I get home when I need to be whether I have an opponent or and then he corrected himself, whether I have an opponent or not, it was not a great line. Not a great line. Uh, but, That's uh, unbelievable. His, his, <laughs> his opponent, Milton Wolf, has had a bunch of problems. So, I mean, at the end, I guess, you know, one, one other thing I would say to you about some of the races you were talking about, um, about the, the campaigns, I mean, what, what has been a, a thing in some of these races is you're really the primary is the fight because a lot of these, uh, states have been states where the Democrat in the general election would have very little chance of winning. And certainly um, uh, the Mississippi race was like that. Excellent. Well, Maggie Haberman, national political reporter for Politico, thanks for giving us perspective all around the country and uh, on some of these important figures that we we read about every day but don't necessarily get the inside scoop on. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And this is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. I'm pleased to have on the line Todd Kaminsky. Todd is a Democrat running for the uh, Democratic nomination in the 20th Assembly District. And that is my home district, full disclosure here. He uh, lives in Long Beach. Uh, the district encompasses Long Beach, Oceanside, and the five towns. We, we'll kind of shift from the national to the hyperlocal. But it's interesting because this is the open seat. It's an open seat, and politics is always exciting when it's a, an open seat. And Todd is a former federal prosecutor who has an impressive track record of successful prosecutions uh, against uh, for political corruption in particular uh, here in New York State. Unfortunately, no shortage of that. Todd, welcome to Spin Class. Hey, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Todd, you, uh, you, you, you're a prosecutor right until the end. You decided you're uh, Harvey Wiesenberg. I think you're uh, uh, some, somebody you know well, uh, decided he was going to time to retire, and you jumped right in with both feet, and it's been full steam ahead. I think you've raised, or at least we'll see, Coming up, but reports are that you've raised an impressive amount of money. Yes, I'm very excited for our uh, our upcoming disclosure. Um, but to, to me, you know, the number the number is going to be what it's going to be. But it's just for me the fact that people I've known throughout my life, uh, all the way to people that I've just met, there's a real uh, hunger out there for having young energy, for having uh, you know young people who uh, are ethical and who you know really want to. Um, get involved in politics there's just been a real hunger for that and i'm 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 definitely fed off that and it's been it's been wonderful so i think we're going to be reporting um having over raised one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars in my first few months of the campaign which i'm just you know delighted uh, about and um you know i think it reflects on you know on the the momentum that we're we're taking with us well congratulations on that uh, so you grew up in Long Beach and you moved back to Long Beach which which in and of itself is it is is noteworthy because one of the issues on Long Island is particularly getting young people who who generally cannot afford to live on Long Island particularly Nassau County which has extraordinarily high property taxes uh, so tell us a little bit about why you came back to Long Beach uh, to live and make your home there sure I think a lot of it had to do with uh, with Hurricane Sandy. Um, I um, started really getting involved in uh, Sandy Relief. Uh, I was able to put together several free legal clinics for people, sometimes where, you know, 25, 30 people in a day got to talk to a lawyer for the first time about their issues. Why can't I get an adjuster to come to my house? Why is the bank holding my check? Why um, are they telling me that, why is my insurance company telling me that I'm not entitled to reimbursement? And there were deep tears in their eyes, and it was, it was uh, really something to behold and, and you know, a real, you know, any measure of help you can give someone was, was really urgent. And a lot of people in my community that I uh, grew up in were doing the same thing, whether 
it was restaurants feeding people free, whether it was um, contractors doing free repair work. And it really brought home to me, again, how special Long Beach is. It's a very uh, diverse community, and the 20th Assembly District is a really diverse district. Um, and it's everybody pulled together, and it really made me say, you know, this is where this is where I want to be. Long Beach, I have to say, won a very impressive cleanup operation, particularly around the boardwalk. Uh, You look at the Rockaway Boardwalk in New York City, and its whole sections are still not even remotely close to being even even shovel in the ground. Long Beach Boardwalk came back quite quickly, and it's quite beautiful. So So I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm going to uh, defend my good friend uh, Phil Goldfeder by uh, you know just. Oh, I don't think Phil. No, no, their boardwalk is twice the size. But yes, Long Beach, Long Beach, um, the boardwalk is our crown jewel. It is, you know, kind of what defines us in a way. And I, as I'm talking to you right now, I just came off 25 miles from the boardwalk, and um, you know, it's the heart of of what we are, and it's it's beautiful and it's great, and I'm glad we were able to um, bring it back. And and sand, you know, it it, it may be the first thing, but it's not going to be the last thing. And if I am fortunate enough. To go to the assembly infrastructure after Sandy is is to me the top or at least one of the top priorities, and that's true with the roads in the five towns that flood on normal rain events, let alone extreme weather events. It's true with uh, protecting our our towns and villages from the bays. Uh, it's true in Long Beach with getting uh, the Army Dune Project, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers Dune Project up. So that uh, high surf isn't coming into our city again. That that has to be our top priority. And very soon, people are going to forget about Sandy. It's going to be over two years. It's going to be a distant event. And whoever the next assembly is, and you know, I I am working hard to make sure that it's me, has to be jumping up and down and shouting and saying, no, no, this is still urgent for us because we don't have the luxury of believing that Sandy was it or the worst thing that we'll ever see in our lifetimes. We just can't afford that luxury, and I certainly want to be there fighting to get us what we need down here to make sure that um, we're ready for the next one. So there is a sense, and maybe it's more perception than actual reality, that there is this rivalry between Long Beach and the rest of the district, and that Long Beach kind of dominates the district to the detriment of the rest, uh, those that are outside of Long Beach. How would you rectify that perception? And just one case in point is the just woefully inadequate uh, it, evacuation route that the five towns has through uh route 878 which is a which is a not even a real road at this point it's more potholes than road no i mean i i i plan on being the assembly person for the entire district not just any part of the district um and i've been in the five towns nearly every day since i left my job as a prosecutor on april 28th as a federal prosecutor to do this and i've i've loved it i mean i certainly was no stranger to the five towns, but it's a lot different now when you're knocking on doors, um, going to shul, um, and, you know, sitting in the, the kitchens of, of, you know, families that live there. Um, and I've been just so touched with, uh, you know, how um, close that the communities are, uh, how close the community is, although obviously there are certainly different, you know, different closeness within certain groups in the community. Everybody's been uh, kind and welcoming, and, um, you know, when you listen to people's needs, it, it, they're certainly great. There's no way that anybody should or could turn their, turn a cold shoulder or turn a cheek to that and say, yeah, that's great, uh, I'll be down here in my part of the district. It's, you know, and, and, I, and I've made commitments sitting in people's kitchens in the five towns, and I believe them wholeheartedly that I'm going to live up to them. Uh, you want to you share any of the promises right here on the air? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's just, you know, it, you know, first of all, people are saying, are you going to be committed to this cause or to that cause, or, or do you really care about this or that? And there's no doubt that I do. So when people say 878 is a joke, uh, it's dangerous, it's an evacuation route, there's traffic more, There's traffic in the morning, there's traffic in the evening. I mean, I'm sitting in that traffic. And uh, I've driven down Peninsula Boulevard when it's r- rained fairly hard, and there's a foot of water sitting on the ground. I mean, that's, that's the district I want to represent. I don't want to... Uh, you know, being a district where half of it uh, is full of people who don't believe they're getting their proper services and don't believe in their assembly person. So there's no doubt that I'm going to be fighting hard for the five towns, just as hard, if not harder than, any, you know, than other parts of the district, you know, where I, where I feel the needs are necessary. There's no doubt about that. Fantastic. Uh, 
there's a sizable number, as I'm sure you know, uh, in this district, sizable number of school children attending private schools as opposed to public schools, which presents its own challenges in a suburban environment, probably more so than in the city environment. Uh, how would you, as an assemblyman, most of education policy is controlled in Albany, as we well know, and it's been a, a struggle. I think the private school community has has struggled to get their case heard, particularly uh, on the assembly side or, you know, possibly on the second floor as well, but the governor's office. But let's just how how would you propose to help uh, parents that pay both high property taxes as well as yeshiva tuition? What kind of relief can the state offer for them? OK, so sitting sitting in those kitchens and, and talking with people in the five towns, it's incredibly apparent to me or to anyone who spends two seconds listening uh, realizing that between taxes and yeshiva tuition, uh, it's an incredibly burdensome hardship on parents in the five towns who send their children to yeshiva. There's just, there's no doubt about that. Um, and it's also a false choice to tell people then don't send your children there. Um, that's, that's, that's just an incredibly unrealistic, harsh, and unacceptable view. Uh, parents should have the choice to send their children wherever they believe They'll best be educated, and whatever their religion dictates, they should go. So there's no doubt that um, that's the reality of the situation. And the other reality of the situation is that every child should have the best possible education wherever his or her parent decides to send that child. So I'm definitely committed to making sure that children have uh, the best possible education wherever they go um, and that parents have that choice. Now, that being said, um, it's an expensive one. Um, and I, you know, in Albany, I would like to uh, explore explore options and fight hard to reduce that burden to, you know, to the extent that that it's possible to do so. There's no doubt that that's the number one or two thing that I hear. And obviously, as a person who wants to be the representative of that district, I am extremely sensitive to that and want to do what I can to use that burden. With regard to your background for a second, hopefully this is not an incendiary question. I don't think it is. I think it's, uh, unfortunately, the times in which we live in is you're a prosecutor, a former prosecutor, but once a prosecutor, kind of always a prosecutor in a sense, uh, who's prosecuted corruption. And you're going, you want to go to a place, I guess, is that's kind of known for its corruption. And, uh, you know, you've had members of the assembly who have worn wires because they've been under indictment and they've sat in the assembly floor and conference and, you know, ratted out their colleagues. And it's, you know, Albany is a little bit not necessarily known for its high ethics. Uh, I worked there for a couple of years, so I'll just, you know, tell you, you know, I, it's from my own personal experience, not necessarily what I read in the papers. But uh, how, how do you reconcile the two? Are you, you're not, you're, you're there as an assemblyman, one of 150, you're not there as the sheriff, uh, but how, how you're going to kind of, uh, come to terms with uh, some of the things that might pass as de rigueur in Albany? Well, listen, I, I, think, um, I think everybody, and I think this goes back to the, the first comment I made about, the fun, about my fundraising, which is I think people are incredibly excited and kind of a little, a little shocked uh, in, a, in, in a good way uh, by having somebody who was a federal prosecutor going up to Albany. And I think, uh, unfortunately... Um, so, you know, what I tell people before I get to any positions about myself is I say, listen, there's a few things you need to know before we get into this issue or that issue, which is, one, you never have to worry about anyone's hand in my pocket or me putting my hand in someone else's pocket. Two, you're going to know where I stand on issues. And three, I'm not going to tell you one thing and do another thing. So before we get to – and I think before you get to any issue, that's what people want to know. They want to know are we sending a good, upright, ethical person who – wants to do the right thing for the community, not for themselves. And after that, the issues are going to fall into place. There are people that, are, that have one or two issues that just will, will, you know, are decisive for them. But most people know that they could agree or disagree with you on some things, but if you're out there fighting to do the right thing, um, they'll trust you and they'll believe in you. And I think having somebody that you know uh, will always do the right thing when it comes to ethics, will not be afraid to... Um, stand next to someone and say, are you really going to do that? Um, I think, I think it's helpful. And I'll tell you something. The, the files that I've had on my desk in the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, a different, a different politician, sometimes from the, you know, in the state government, sometimes not, only made me want to do this job more. It only, it only made me say, 
we could do better than this, right? You know, is, doesn't the public want to see a different type of person? And that's what I'm hoping to be. And I think that's why people have um, had no trouble writing me checks, be they strangers or good friends. I think everyone's saying, yeah, this is who we want to go here. And I know it's an incredibly haughty thing to say. Um, and I, I don't want to have a big head over this, and I'm very far from where I want to be. But I, I think that's that's part of what I'm I'm trying to do. And if I can for a second, I, I think Ben Brosnan, who is an extremely um, you know influential person in the Five Towns, I don't need to tell you, um, saw me as a prosecutor, and his office worked against me. Uh, we were opposite each other in a few cases, and he's been a great supporter of mine. And he is co-hosting. Um, an event on July 22nd at the Lawrence Country Club where um, numerous um, prominent people in the five towns are hosting an event along with Speaker Silver uh, to welcome me and introduce me to other people in the five towns. And I think that says a lot, right, which is, okay, yeah, I could be a prosecutor and I could win some awards and win big cases and put notches on my belt is, is, the, is, the, is the rough term for it. But my opponents, like Ben Brothman, also have... Uh, come forward for me, and I think that's great, which says that I'm going to do what I think is right, I'm going to push hard, but I'm, a, but I'm a pretty fair guy, I get along with people, and I'm not rude and nasty. And I think that's what people want. They want to send you up there, they want to send you to fight for them, um, but they also want to know that deep down, you know, you're a good guy, and you, know, you, you could talk and deal with everybody, because that's what it's going to require to get us what we need. I'm all for shameless plugs, by the way, so you don't have to worry about the uh, the shameless plug. Uh, you know, it's you, 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 it's, mean the, it's pro- you mean the shameless plug of July 22nd at the Lawrence Country Club? Oh, oh, that, there it is again. Uh, and 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 it and it doesn't cost anyone anything. It's a free event. So anyone in the five towns that would like to meet me, please please come on down. Oh, even more shameless. Okay, so a free <laughs> event. Uh, uh, Todd, uh, two last questions for you. So just because yeah. uh, I know you probably have a busy day of campaigning uh, ahead and. Uh, yeah, right now you're a full-time campaigner, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, now, number one, one of the things, one of the criticisms, or criticisms, what one, uh, one issue that suburban voters uh, have had, and I think that this has actually come up, you know, in in various races that have been competitive, uh, whether they be state senate races or even county type races, a county executive, uh, where Republicans have actually done well in the counties surrounding New York City, is that the Democratic Party, particularly the Assembly, is dominated by New York City. New York City's interests are not necessarily aligned with that of the suburbs. We don't necessarily, uh, you know, have the same. Uh, needs or or uh, government structures as far as taking care of those needs. How would you, as as a minority within the Democratic conference, go ahead and represent well the suburban needs uh, against some possibly against some of your colleagues who more favor uh, those of the cities? Yeah, so th- th- this is where Assemblyman Goldfeder and I would would part company, um, but but but. I think it's incredibly important that we work with the other side of the aisle to get things done. And I think that's important. I think the different, you know, I've been involved in what may or may not be a primary battle. We'll see when petitions get filed this week. So I've been trying to meet Democratic voters as much as I can. And sometimes we get caught up in our our own world. Is Is he a Republican? Who is he? What type of person is he? We get caught up in our labels. But Long Island will have to stick together to get, what it needs, and that means people are going to have to work with the other side of the aisle. So you're going to, you know, the example I was giving with Ben Brothman before is applicable here, which is we have to work with, we have to work with um, our our colleagues on the other side of the aisle to get what we need because too many, uh, there is a Todd Kaminsky or a Harvey Wiesenberg or a Phil Goldfeder every six blocks in the city. It's just the population is what it is. And the numbers are tough, so we're going to have to stick together. And I think I'm definitely somebody that could work with people on the other side of the aisle. I'm not, uh, as much as I believe wholeheartedly in my democratic values, I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool person that uh, scowls at people that talk to someone who may be a Republican. I think that's exactly what we have to do. And, uh, you know, to the extent that our needs align geographically, then that's what we're going to have to do to, to, fight, for, to fight for our suburban, um, our suburban constituents. Okay, Todd Kaminsky, Democrat running for the Democratic nomination in the 20th Assembly District, representing Long Island former federal prosecutor. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Hope to have you again as the race progresses. 
means a lot to me, and I hope to see you on July 22nd at the Lawrence Country Club. Okay, looking forward to it. Uh, another shameless plug right there. And Thank uh, thanks for joining us, Todd. Uh, this is Spin Class, sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, and certainly we could not let a show go by without talking about the Matzav, the uh, situation in Israel, what is going on right now. Uh, I don't know if you call it war right now, but it certainly seems uh, seems like uh, we are once again – uh, being drawn into the Gaza quagmire. We have jo- joining us a special guest, Michael Freund, a former senior advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu, now chairman of Shabbat Israel, a Jerusalem Post columnist, and a uh, very uh, all-around smart and erudite guy. Michael, welcome back to Spin Class. Thanks. It's good to be with you. So, Michael, it's particularly personal right now. I think you mentioned to me that your son is possibly headed down to the south. Uh, that's correct. Uh, but, um, it, I think it's, it should be personal for, uh, for every, uh, for every Jew and for everyone who is, uh, supportive of Israel. Uh, the fact is that, um, most of the country finds itself under assault, uh, day in and day out. The Palestinians are firing hundreds of rockets at our towns and cities, um, without regard for who they might hit. And, um, it's it's time for uh, the people of Israel and the government of Israel to stand up and quash this threat. So what? Where where do we go from here? I guess what is the end game, or what is the what's the middle game? I mean, wh- what is you know, Israel has hesitated to go in by ground to Gaza. It hasn't been it, it hasn't been terribly successful in the past. Uh, and can we stick to just air assault? Well, it, it all comes down to a question of uh, what price uh, the country is willing to pay in order to have uh, long-term quiet in the South. In other words, over the past decade, uh, decade or so, uh, Israel has periodically gone into Gaza for limited incursions with limited objectives in mind. And in each case, that bought short-term quiet for a year or two or three at a time. Um, presumably because the government uh, was not willing to um, to go in and maintain a longer-term presence on the ground in Gaza, because most military strategists will tell you that that is the only way to once and for all uh, dismantle the threat that Hamas poses to the Jewish state. So it all comes down to a, a simple calculus, or not so simple calculus, as to um, as to what kind of price uh, the country is willing to pay, because clearly uh, a ground incursion means, uh, God forbid, uh, casualties among the soldiers. Now Hamas would seem to be is this desperation on their part this this assault uh, they they would seem to be in a very weak position uh at least uh, according to many analysts in the fact that they had formed this unity government but many of their civil serv- civil servants were not getting paid egypt has cut them off israel continues to uh to obviously not be helping them uh so they seem to really have very few allies is this the kind of a, a desperate gasp on the part of Hamas, or this a are they looking for what type of strategic advantage are they looking for uh, here? Well, it's important to remember that um, although uh, Hamas was popularly elected by uh, the Palestinians in Gaza, uh, they are a despotic uh, regime, and like most despots, when the uh, the domestic situation becomes difficult. Uh, as it has in Gaza, with their economy in freefall, uh, the uh, the standard trick that is utilized is to uh, turn popular anger against a uh, a foreign enemy, so to speak, and that's what Hamas has been trying to do here uh, by uh, by launching assaults on Israel. They're trying to divert the attention of the Palestinian population away from their day-to-day problems and pin the blame on the Jewish state. And secondly, they're trying to reinforce their image in the eyes of the Palestinian public as the uh, the heroic resistance fighters who stand up to the Zionists, uh, in contrast with 
uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the chairman of the Palestinian Authority, who, uh, who they paint as being somewhat more liberal vis-a-vis the Israelis. So, um, like many things uh, around the world, this too is driven by a certain element of domestic political need. Are you surprised at the lack, or perhaps not the right word, but I guess the lack of support coming from the West Bank uh, areas, from uh, from Palestinians in Davos Shimon, even with regard to the roundup of Hamas activists after the kidnapping and the murder of the three boys, uh, there really has not been there's been the calls for a third intifada, and that really hasn't happened. Uh, in the in in those areas, what is there a bifurcation? Is there a split within Palestinian society right now uh, as far as people don't want to go the Hamas way? Well, uh, as we know, Hamas and uh, and Mahmoud Abbas recently uh, forged a unity agreement in an attempt to set up a uh, a unity government that would comprise uh, both uh, Hamas and Fatah and their various supporters. Nonetheless, even while they are uh, in this uh, this attempted uh, joint regime, uh, there is, of course, uh, competition between among the two of them for control over the uh, the, the masses. Um, and many people suspect that Hamas's ultimate aim is uh, through this uh, through this violence to gain a foothold, um, a much bigger foothold among the Palestinians in Judea and Samaria with the goal of perhaps trying to take over the Palestinian Authority once and for all. Uh, that, of course, would be a very uh, dangerous development. Uh, we see what Hamas does from its foothold in Gaza. God only knows what they would try to do uh, if they should gain such a foothold in Judea and Samaria. But what worries me, perhaps uh, no less, is... Um, Really, the lack of support coming from uh, President Obama. Uh, your previous uh, interviewee was a, uh, a Democrat or a progressive. I wonder how any Jewish person who supports Israel can actually remain a supporter of the Democratic Party in light of how Mr. Obama uh, is not giving Israel the backing that it needs. On the one hand, his uh, administration has been mumbling a few lines about Israel having the right to defend itself. But on the other hand, uh, he's been uh, issuing these calls for uh, restraint, um, which is code. Uh, It's code for uh, Jews, uh, don't go too far. Uh, There are limits on how much we're going to tolerate you defending yourselves. And I'm sorry, but that is not how uh, friends or allies support one another in a time of need. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Uh, the uh, Haaretz held this uh, Israel conference on peace this this week, and uh, Obama's, or I guess the U.S. government's official peace representative spoke at the, uh, at the conference and was extraordinarily critical. As rockets were coming down, as Israel was going to battle, uh, blamed Israel for not... At, you know, Hamas is shooting rockets, and Israel is to blame before the collapse of the peace process. Uh, well, absolutely, that's correct, and uh, I think that speaks volumes about uh, where this administration really stands. Uh, and it is simply a disgrace that uh, all those uh, Jewish Democrats who voted for Obama, who contributed to his campaign, uh, have fallen silent in the face of uh Mr Obama's uh, treatment of Israel particularly in these uh, dangerous times um, I mentioned before how uh, Fatah and Hamas had uh, forged a unity deal to create a unity government uh even once that deal went through uh Mr Obama and uh, the state department under Mr Kerry have refused to cut off US aid to the Palestinian authority even though in effect it means that American taxpayer dollars are going to Hamas. It's simply incredible. It's hard to believe. But the fact is that hundreds of millions of U.S. taxpayer dollars each year are being transferred to the Palestinian Authority at a time when Hamas is part of that Palestinian Authority. I would assume that any American taxpayer who reads about 
the uh, the uh, the national debt of trillions of dollars has got to be scratching his head and wondering why on earth Mr. Obama is insists on sending hundreds of millions more to the Palestinian Authority when it is attacking the Jewish state. Uh, excellent point. Uh, let's talk for a second about the domestic political scene in Israel. And the, the government is, as as always, is uh, is only one vote away from you know from being toppled. Uh, but generally, when there are, are issues of national uh, concern or or a national crisis like like this. Uh, the government comes together and or and the various factions and the various parties can come together, uh, whether it's a unity government or not. Uh, they can there is a lot of support for the prime minister and and the cabinet and his actions. Is that the is that the sense you have domestically right now in Israel of that happening? Yes, absolutely. In fact, in recent days, there have been uh, reports of uh, of rumored attempts to possibly create a national unity government that would bring in uh, the Haredi parties, the ultra-Orthodox parties, and possibly even the Labor Party um, in advance of a, uh, of a possible extended conflict. Uh, we don't know yet, of course, how serious those uh, negotiations are or whether it's just a trial balloon of some sort. But uh, clearly, when... Um, when Hamas fires its rockets, uh, they don't just aim them at right-wing voters or left-wing voters. They aim them at all Israelis, and uh, the people of the country are cognizant of that. Now, where does uh, Netanyahu has had uh, – has certainly, according to reports, has certainly been willing uh, to uh, to offer some concessions and offer a plan at least – uh, to carry uh, for for the peace process. Uh, now let's just assume, take it aside for the fact that the yeah you know, the process is dead as far as uh, as for everybody for for you know, according to everybody's uh, opinion right now it's certainly more dead than it was uh, after after the rockets come down. Uh, but Netanyahu has been willing to go ahead at least uh, on at least uh, rumored to make some concessions. Uh, does it, and that has been risky for him within his own within his own party uh, within his own coalition. Uh, now, where as does that impact uh, the security concerns, the legitimate immediate security concerns of ending this? Uh, is there a is there a kind of status quo that Israel wants to get to? You obviously, you want the rockets to stop, but you want but. Is is what is the status quo? Well, I guess what we're trying to say is what is strategic end game? You've been in Israel for a long time, trying to. I'm sure that you've you've thought about this as to how what kind of accommodation can be reached here, if any. So what is what is the end game that Bibi and his people are thinking about? Is what do we need to get to? Well, um, I, I think that the uh, the assumption that uh, an accommodation of one sort or another can be reached. Is unfortunately a, uh, a false and even somewhat naive Western assumption. In other words, um, I grew up in America and I know the mentality here, which is, um, you know, if, hey, if we can all just uh, sit around uh, over a beer or two, we can work out our differences. Uh, generally speaking, that's the case when the the person you're having a beer with is a rational actor. Um, but when you're dealing with um, fundamentalists, uh, Islamic terrorists, uh, and extremists. Um, first of all, they don't drink beer. But second of all, even if you sat down with them, uh, their goal is not uh, to reach a deal. Their goal is the elimination of a Jewish presence in the Middle East. These are not people that one can uh, negotiate with. They're willing to send their own children to serve as suicide bombers, they're willing to use their own women and children and elderly as uh, human shields in uh, military campaigns. So these are not people that can be, or these, this is not an enemy that can be accommodated. It is a foe that needs to be vanquished. Um, and that is something that uh, it, it's a hard reality to accept 
because certainly we all uh, we all would love to see peace and tranquility prevail, but um, we're living in a tough neighborhood, and when you're in a tough neighborhood, uh, you have to be. Uh, it's nice to be idealistic, but you also have to be realistic. That's uh, you know, sobering, and I think uh, many out there uh, agree with you. And that's uh, I guess that rational actors theory would apply to some of these other situations, like Syria and ISIS in Iraq, as well as in Iran. You know, dealing with with irrational actors who are bent on a specific. Although I, I think that uh, you know, there are, there are some who feel that perhaps Iran is a more rational actor than the others. Although, well, I guess we'll have to see. Um, you know, but. Uh, with regard to with regard to um, so these other the other conflicts out there, uh, you know Israel can't take its eye off the Iran ball, the the, the nuclear uh, issue with Iran. And how how much does that play into the current conflict? I think there is a deadline coming up right now, and uh, they have to be mindful of the fact that you want to maintain international support for disarming or at least stopping Iran's nuclear weapon. And, you know, it, it just goes to show that Israel faces threats uh, from so many fronts. Absolutely. And uh, clearly, uh, there's very little confidence uh, in Israel um, that uh, that America and the West are going to uh, pound the table with the Iranians and force them to give up uh, their nuclear ambitions. Uh, we're, we're already seeing how uh, more and more European uh, companies and countries are uh, lining up and rubbing their hands in glee at the possibility of signing uh, huge uh, contracts with uh, with Iran. Um, so uh, th- there's very little sense that um, that um, America and the West are serious when they say that they will not allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons. Because uh, the, the the belief is that uh, even if that statement is true, uh, all it means is that they will allow the Iranians to uh, to get right up to the point where they could possibly develop the weapons, um, and that of course is uh, too close for comfort. That's too big a risk. Uh, we're talking about um, a possible existential threat to the state of Israel. The uh, the very Idea, the very possibility that uh, the Ayatollahs might have uh, their finger on the atomic button uh, would be a game changer for the entire Middle East. It would destabilize the entire region. It would force an arms race uh, throughout the area. Uh, countries such as Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Arab states are terrified of the of the possibility of Iran having a nuclear weapon almost as much as Israel is. So um, we have to uh, we have to press the government, uh, we have to press the administration to uh, to take a very firm line uh, against uh, Iran uh, on this subject. And last question for you, Michael. We're talking to Michael Freund here on Spin Class, uh, columnist for the Jerusalem Post. Uh, are you surprised that Egypt, uh, with the new government, has really not been uh, not come to uh, any side, any type of uh, aid or help for Hamas? Not at all, because um, uh, Hamas is linked with the uh, Egyptian uh, Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, it was the Brotherhood, in uh, personified by Mohammed Morsi, the previous Egyptian president that um, Mr. al-Sisi uh, threw out of power and has been waging a campaign uh, against. So uh, in Mr. al-Sisi's eyes, uh, Hamas is an extension of his own domestic political enemies. So he has certainly uh, shown uh, hostility towards Hamas and has proven to be much more cooperative with, uh, with Israel um, than Mr. Morsi would ever have been. And that's a very positive development because that um, that will generate or has been generating a lot more pressure on Hamas. Their previous, their ally in Cairo uh, is no longer uh, in power. 
Okay, Michael Freund, former senior advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu, columnist for the Jerusalem Post, chairman of Shabbat Israel. Thanks for joining us here and giving us your analysis of the current situation. Thanks. Good to be with you. And best of luck to your son, all your family, and all our families there uh, in Israel in harm's way. Uh, and uh, this is Spin Class. Just to close, uh, our knucklehead of the week, and actually this goes back a couple weeks, but it had to be said, uh, the campaign manager for Bronx State Senate candidate Oliver Capel, who's challenging Jeff Klein, he was a field director of the Working Families Party, and then Capel uh, fired him. He had not apparently looked at his Facebook page where he said uh, he made comments of, just my luck, I go to City Field to watch the Mets game, and it turns out, celebrate Israel night, shaking my head. And then he said, we live in the United States of Israel. This guy had apparently uh, is anti-Israel, anti-Jewish, and uh, Capel's only excuse was, I uh, don't, not so technically savvy. Shame on you, Oliver Capel, for hiring somebody with that kind of history, and you earn our knucklehead of the week. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. We will be back to you with more political talk next week here on the Nakam Siegel Network. Thank you.